A very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral to this, the next in our conversation series. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee the learning and theology that takes place within the cathedral. This conversation is with the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Most Reverend Justin Welby, and we are reflecting on the theme of reconciliation. As always, our conversation is wide-ranging, reflecting on the difference between peace and reconciliation, why reconciliation is so very difficult to live out in practice. We think about reconciliation on the global stage as well as locally. And also at the end, we spend some time thinking about reconciliation and forgiveness. I hope you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. Archbishop Justin, it's lovely to have you with us today. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and you've just been on study leave, and I know that you've been writing a book on reconciliation, and that it's been a real passion for you for many, many years. I wonder if you'd mind, mind starting by telling us what drew you into the work of re reconciliation? Why did, how did it become your great passion? Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, I was pretty horrified when I saw um, this in my diary because uh, it's, it's uh, when you look at who else you've interviewed, uh, it's quite intimidating. So having said that and tried to make my excuses up front, um, I think, I mean, in one sense, it's personal. It's very interesting that a lot of people in reconciliation work, not all of them by any means, but an unreasonable amount in some sense, uh, seemed to come from fairly, uh, from homes where there was a lot of trouble or fracture or dysfunction, which was my case. And um, therefore have, I don't know, as growing up a, a desire to, at some level, to try and make things well, to make things work, to enable people to get on. Um, that can, of course, lead nowhere at all. I, in the providence of God, after I'd been uh, an incumbent, a vicar in a local church, local parish in Mid Warwickshire for seven years, the um, Bishop of Coventry, the then Bishop, invited me to go to Coventry Cathedral to work uh, with Canon Andrew White on reconciliation projects at the what was then called the International Centre for Reconciliation incorporating the Community of the Cross of Nails nowadays just called the Community of the Cross of Nails which if I mention it again I'll call CCN just to confuse people and um, I went because I was asked to and that's what you do and very quickly I thought uh, this is me. And it just felt like a God had put me in a sort of Justin-shaped hole, really. And uh, I fitted in, um, despite making a ton of mistakes. Um, so that's, that's the background to that. And then over... I was working an awful lot in war zones and places of intense conflict. And uh, just about the time I started in this role, in this job uh, as Archbishop, many years later, 
because I finished at Coventry in 2007 and I came here in 2013. Uh, there'd been a long-range conference at Coventry Cathedral on reconciliation and I went there. And by the way, in the pictures, when you're already bored listening to this, if you look at the pictures behind me, uh, you will see they are pictures of Coventry Cathedral. Um, uh, I went to uh, a conference there and I heard Sam Wells start a talk by saying the gospel is reconciliation and reconciliation is the gospel. And it just helped me see why everything came together so powerfully. Thank you. Um, so that kind of brings us on to um, asking that question of what, what is reconciliation? If, if reconciliation is the gospel, um, can you give us a little pocket-sized definition of what you think it is? If you want a pocket-sized definition, I would say reconciliation uh, is the transformation of broken and destructive relationships or of destructive conflict. Uh, it's reconciliation is the transformation of broken and destructive relationships into diversity with love. That's a lovely pocket-sized definition, because my next question is, what's the difference between reconciliation and peace, which you've rather half answered already, but let me go on to ask you the question of what's the difference between. So I'm doing a little bit of work on um, Roman history, as I often do at the moment, and I'm very struck with the Pax Romana. You know, the, there will be peace because we tell you there will, and if you disagree with us, we'll strike you with our army until you agree to us that there will be peace. And it feels that like there's kind of something so, so different between that kind of peace and what you're talking about um, in your definition? Both in terms of reconciliation and peace. There is a, there is a close, they are obviously siblings or cousins because both of them have their ideal in the heart and mind and purpose and nature of God. In God, in the Trinity, we see absolute peace, divine peace, within the Trinity. We don't see reconciliation because there wasn't anything to be reconciled. But between human beings and God, particularly in the second coming and in the new Jerusalem, we see perfect divine reconciliation in which all that is has been broken from the fall and through human sinfulness and failure and darkness is caught up into the perfect light of the city of God. But both of them also have their temporary, their not yet side their shadowy, half-dark, expanding light side. Peace in this world is never complete, but is found in the knowledge of the love of God and in the security 
of good relationships with others. It is found in harmonious relationships, whether at, in the family or at the geopolitical, even the cosmic level. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is a peace which we have, but do not fully experience. As Paul goes on to say, I'm talking to a Pauline scholar, um, so I would suggest Paul goes on to say in Romans 7. But peace is never imposed, nor is reconciliation. Peace is the harmony of relationships. Reconciliation is the process by which those relationships come into peace. Thank you. Um, You're welcome to say you disagree entirely. I agree with you wholeheartedly about Paul. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> An evasive well, answer, but a good one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, just looking around the world at the moment, um, it does make a person sigh a little, doesn't it? Because um, it feels as though um, very fragile reconciliation might have been built up in certain areas. I'm thinking particularly in Afghanistan, which is on many of our hearts and minds at the moment. Um, and why do you think we struggle so much um, with not only reconciliation, but then maintaining the reconciliation? It feels as though you get to a certain stage and then we all kind of fall back again um, into um, situations such as we see in Afghanistan. Hmm. Uh, in uh, this book that I've spent the last um, period writing, my second chapter is Why is Reconciliation So Elusive? And I think I'd say a number of things in answer to that and answer to your question. One is, and I'm talking here, if you like, at the human level, I'll come back to the divine level uh, and try and merge them together. I think at the human level, I want to say, because of lack of inclusion, because of lack of justice, because of lack of repentance, because of lack of truth, and because we go for overspeed and overreach. Let me take those in turn. They're not in any particular order of priority, but they all really matter. Lack of inclusion. Reconciliation that doesn't include women. Historically, according to UN research, first published in 2000 and then again in about 2009, I think, updated. Uh, if you don't include women, you don't get reconciliation. Not because women cause wars, but because on the whole, they have to live with them and solve them. And by not including them, you leave out 50% of the population. And in some of the countries you've mentioned, particularly in Afghanistan, women were not in the process on both sides. Their voice was not heard. If you don't include 
young men in particular, you will not cut off the flow of troops into militias and armed groups. So inclusion. Then changing the order in which I was talking a bit, over speed. After World War II, one of the few global examples of international reconciliation on a huge scale took place between many, but not all of, the enemies in the war, in particular in Northwest Europe. I remember an extraordinary conversation I had when I was working in France, um, in Paris, in an oil company back in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was traveling down to Nigeria, of which doubtless more later, but nothing to do with reconciliation at that time. I was traveling down to Nigeria with the head of Elf's shipping department, who was obviously infinitely senior to me, but had very kindly put me in the seat next to him. He was a quite remarkable man, delightful man. And we were discussing the European Union and um, in the early 80s, how unlike today. There was much dispute in England about England particularly, UK to a level, but mainly England, about whether we should be in the Europe, what was then the common market or not. And he said, you English, he said carefully, uh, have never understood uh, the purpose of what is now called the European Union, wasn't then. He said, my grandfather fought the Prussians in 1870. He was near retirement, uh, this man. And so that was reasonable. And he said one of his brothers was killed. My father fought the Germans in the First World War and was gassed and many of his relatives were killed. He said, I fought the Germans in the Second World War, in the resistance in France, and my brother was killed. He said, the whole purpose of this common market, European economic community, is that young French men will never again be killed or kill young German men. And my children and my grandchildren will never fight the Germans. When you think that the British and the Germans, the French and the Germans, between them killed, oh, I don't know, five million of each other's citizens and wounded many more between 1914 and 1945, the fact that we have never since 1945 gone to war, having been at war continually over those lands since the fall of the Western Roman Empire, with very short gaps, is extraordinary. That is something about reconciliation. But is it finished? No. It is an ongoing work. Over speed is 
shown in a question after the Belfast Agreement in Northern Ireland in 1998, which I heard on the Today programme. One of the interviewers said to someone from Northern Ireland about three weeks after the Belfast Agreement, so has reconciliation been achieved? They, the answer was, we've been fighting on and off for 800 years. I think it may take a little longer than three weeks, which I thought was quite restrained in the circumstances. Overspeed, overreach, we want perfection and no rows. And if you go for that, you'll never get there. It's about disagreeing well, not disagreeing badly. It's not about not disagreeing. Overreach is to say we must have unanimity. Uh, inclusion, overreach, overspeed, um, lack of truth and justice, a lack of a common narrative about what had gone wrong and what we'd done to each other. Go to the Museum of Germany in Berlin and there is a remorseless truth and justice about the events of the Nazi era, a remorseless self-examination. There is truth-telling, which is a major part of reconciliation, and justice, not justice imposed by one side immediately, but justice that emerges from the process of reconciliation and says, we must acknowledge, acknowledge what, what happened and we must ensure that it is seen that we recognize what was wrong, evil, and sinful. Sorry, it's a long answer, but it's an immensely complicated problem. I could wrap it up in a very short answer by saying human sin, impatience, and illusion. And it feels kind of particularly poignant, doesn't it, at the moment? I'm thinking um, both, we've got so, so many issues going on around, but I'm particularly conscious um, that this month is the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And um, I think a lot of people, if you ask them, what is the major cause of conflict in the world, would say religion. If they were to say that to you, what might you want to say to them in response? <clears throat> There's about a million answers. I mean, I might, if I was feeling in a robust mood, which at the end of a very, very long day, uh, I may be feeling more robust than is wise. I think I might say, I didn't notice that Hitler or Stalin were particularly religious. But I might also say, yes, of course it is. But is it the cause or the apparent cause. Let me go to Nigeria with you for a moment and to Kaduna um, in northern Nigeria in um, November, December 2002, when terrible riots uh, at that time led to, uh, oh, I don't know, there's any number of, of figures given, but somewhere between 1,500 and 2,500 dead over three days. And I arrived just after that to begin to work on reconciliation there. Too soon, too difficult, but we made a lot of progress for a little while, but it broke down 
to some degree. But it still was a turning point there. Um, Andrew White and I, it was an extraordinary moment in a city torn apart. And the first thing, oh, all the UK press and around the world, it's religious, it's Muslims against Christians. First person I talked to, listened to, said, well, the Muslims started it. He was a Christian, uh, retired major from the army, but we killed more of them than they did of us. Hmm, it's religion. And then slowly it emerged that we were a few months before some elections, that a candidate for uh, the governorship had hired unemployed young men for what was at that time about 50 pence each. And uh, for that 50 pence, invited them to loot and start fighting. And so they did, and people had struck back and they'd all lost control of the process, you know, cry havoc and loose the dogs of war. And uh, over time, you thought, well, a 70% unemployment rate of the youth gives you a lot of people who'll take small sums of money to do an awful lot of damage. So perhaps it's economic. And then you realize that there was a history of violence which had not been looked at truthfully and justice hadn't been done. Oh, so maybe it's historical. And then you realize that, uh, I mean, I could go on, there were ethnic and tribal differences and so on and so forth. And what had happened was with an election coming up and heightened tension through politics, united with uh, economic deprivation and marginalization of particular groups, economic and social injustice, frustration by uh, young men, a large pool of people available to cause trouble, uh, wicked and evil leadership from particular people at that time. And then there's an easy hook, which is to say you're Muslim, you're good, they're Christian, they're bad, or you're Christian, you're good, they're Muslim, they're bad. And you put all of those together and it catches fire. And the reality is that religion is very often extremely good hook on which to hang much more complex issues. It's easy to communicate, it's easy to use. It's not the whole story. So is it religion? Look more deeply. Sometimes, absolutely it is. It is a perverted religion and it is the role of people like myself for our sins or of leaders of other faiths, both to accept responsibility where doctrines and teaching in our faith have led to religion being usable in that way and to de decry it, deny it, and denounce it. We must take responsibility. So yes, it is sometimes, to some extent, but it's never, never quite that simple. 
And would you want to come in and also put a positive case for the role of religion in reconciliation? Well, I mean, obviously you would, because it's your Christian faith that drives you towards your reconciliation work. Um, I, I was wondering if we want to kind of, we've done the negative, um, shall we do the positive now about what is it about your own faith that, that kind of drives you into this work? Um, I'm glad you... Um said obviously I would because I was just about <laughs> to give you one of my difficult answers and say no not at all and look you look at you very solemnly and wait f to see what happened um obviously well at the risk of you know the well-known squirrel joke I think I'd say it's Jesus um but I want I'd want to unpack that and say in, in Christian faith, well, it goes back to Sam Wells. The gospel, reconciliation is the gospel. And do we really think that God has made so little reconciliation that it's sort of easily contained within the individual? Or do we think that rather than giving us a small glass of reconciliation, he opens a fire hose of reconciliation at us through the death and resurrection and uh, ascension of Jesus and uh, through the incarnation and uh, through all his work through the whole cosmos and through the promise of final judgment and above all through the gift of the spirit, the spirit of peace. Do we honestly think that reconciliation is so limited and God is so powerless? It's bonkers, to use a theological term. Um, therefore, within and one of the things i've seen more clearly in writing this book because i really write for myself as much as anything else to help me think work out what i'm thinking is uh that we constantly see the activity of god within the church within the individual beyond the church right through the cosmos in bringing harmony in bringing truth and life and justice we see heroic people from other faiths. I think of a friend of mine called, I'm privileged to call a friend, uh, I hardly dare except he has called me a friend, Sheikh Bin Baya, um, who has worked at infinite risk to his own life and future to enable Muslims who believe in peace and reconciliation to become reconcilers. I think of so many others where I've seen God is at work in bringing peace. When we pick up Rowan Williams' great statement about uh, what, how do we decide what we're to do, we see what God is doing and get alongside and do it, I find myself drawn into reconciliation. You've been talking a lot about the global situation, um, and I wonder whether we can just think a little bit about the UK for a moment. Um, what do you think are the real challenges to reconciliation in a post-pandemic UK? It feels as though the situation has shifted a little bit. Um, and I wonder whether you've had got any reflections about where we find ourselves and what would be the most urgent things for us to focus our attention on in terms of reconciliation. Yes, yeah, so I've been doing a lot of work on that with the most extraordinary group of people um, uh, a coalition of more than 350 groups who I'm very privileged to chair this steering group of it, which has formed over uh, the last two or three years. 
and it has most extraordinary people involved um, and organizations and companies and well-known institutions. And we were talking about this exactly at a steering group meeting on Tuesday, not with all 350, with about 30. There's some really, really good news uh, coming out of the pandemic. Hugely challenging news, but hugely good news. And the good news is that one of the most detailed studies through uh, polling and focus groups that's ever been done and through big circulation, about 150,000 people participating, demonstrated that people want a less divided society. That from carefully structured for social background, for um, geography, for everything you can think of, people want a less fractured society. It's what they're looking for. What, not everyone, but certainly a significant majority. Secondly, the extraordinary figure of 4.7 million people who volunteered out of a larger number who volunteered last year during the pandemic to help their communities have said they want to go on volunteering and helping. And um, the head of the RVS, the Royal Voluntary Society, uh, said, who is coordinating this work um, uh, of, of those new volunteers, said what keeps her awake at night is not is the fear of missing this wave, of, of letting people down. So there's an extraordinary upsurge of community spirit, a wonderful upsurge of community spirit, which reflects a deep set culture within this country that it is good to help your neighbor. Uh, you know, that somewhere deep down, that is there. And I just praise God for that. It's the most extraordinary thing. But within this country, we have an infinitely more complex society than we did, say, in the sort of, you know, nostalgia mythic um, ridden years of, of, of the Second World War, the sort of Dunkirk spirit, we were all together. Um, we have a much more complex society, uh, many more faith groups. Um, philosophy is in, has seeped into the culture as being radically more individualized, autonomous, uh, less willing to have a monolithic, simple story that we follow about who we are, We've lost the narrative of who we are. To some degree, we have these competing narratives which were identified in that wonderful book after virtue, of course. Um, and we see that more and more clearly. So there's those competitive forces at work in our country. And then we can no more isolate to, sorry to push back at your question, we can no more isolate ourselves from the world and what is going on around us uh, in terms of philosophy, in terms of attitude, in terms of reconciliation, in terms of attitude to one another, than we can isolate ourselves in terms of trade and the economy or anything else. Uh, social media and uh, international travel and the influence of the other around the world, of refugees, everything from refugees to international competitions in sport, to culture, to television, whatever it happens to be, all those things mean we 
what is happening outside is constantly uh, influencing how we think about one another and what we think about one another. And so what is happening in the world, particularly the issues you were just asking me about, about uh, interfaith issues, um, has a profound effect on this country, um, as we saw with Palestine and Gaza uh, a few months ago, and you know the convoy of cars driving around um, in Finchley, uh, the upsurge in anti-Semitic attacks, as we see the other way round, as people are enraged by what happens when Palestinians are not treated rightly. And those things come in here and affect the way we see each other and how we behave and are used by groups who want to cause, to cause trouble. So all these things come together. And for instance, if one was to take one example, it seems to me that the global, uh, the issue of, of interfaith, particularly post-Afghanistan, and the Taliban um, in control in Afghanistan, and the comments they've made of we won this with our faith, with our swords, and through the power of God, and things like that, and, it, and the power of jihad, those sort of things seep in and will have an effect on people all around the world. And issue, these are issues that are global, generational, and theological, not just philosophical, but theological, and they require a narrative of reconciliation. There's about a million things in there. That's my job. Oh, wonderful. Million things. Um, so that narrative of reconciliation, that, I mean, I've heard you speak about the, this narrative before. And oh, I never said anything new, Paula. <laughs> Why? Whoever, who does? But... Um, but um, I think for me, there's something very powerful about that narrative of reconciliation. and I find myself constantly inspired by it. And then I go back to my ordinary life, and my family and my work life and my neighbours. Um, and immediately it becomes a lot more complicated. It's almost as though um, kind of having a vision of a global reconciliation becomes a lot easier than simply having um, a life in which you live out reconciliation. And I'm wondering whether you can give, so anyone who's been listening to you and feeling inspired about reconciliation, and yet isn't going to be in high level international talks or even um, kind of UK based talks, but actually it's just living out their day, life day to day. What advice would you give them? Or what advice would you give me about how you live out a, the characteristic, that narrative of reconciliation? How do we live it out practically? Well, um, let me start with some things to remember, and I'll be pretty basic about it. Um, and then some things um, uh, to do. Very briefly, first of all, how do we live it out? We have to be undefended. So one of the things about reconciliation is in the vast majority of cases, reconciliation starts with the more powerful. It's God who is incarnate in Jesus, who came to us, who needed the reconciliation. That's the extreme example. Um, and so there needs to be sacrifice. Reconciliation costs, and we need to remember that. Secondly, we need to remember the issues of honor and shame. 
Often reconciliation means recognizing our shame and being willing to have that sense of honor um, that is still deep within us, even if it's an old-fashioned word. And in some parts of the world, it's still much more important visibly than others. But I think sociologically, it is still really important here. Uh, honor and shame. Don't forget honor and shame. Remember them. Thirdly, remember the body. One of the best bits of, of my study leaf was a seminar uh, online in, uh, when I was in Cambridge, uh, organized very kindly by some people uh, with some neuroscientists about what goes in, on in the body during conflict and after conflict, and particularly when conflict goes on and on and on. And I won't unpack the whole thing, but the key, the, the phrase I remember from a wonderful scientist who, was, who gave a most inspiring presentation in that seminar, he started with the phrase, remember the body. We all know if you're down in the dumps, if you've got a stinking cold, if you are overtired, you are more likely to be narky and horrid and cause trouble. If you've got low blood sugar, if you... Um, haven't uh, had anything to eat, you are more likely to be knocked. If equally you are used to acting in conflict, you will, the chemicals in the brain will push you into a fight or flight approach much more quickly than someone who has developed habits of peace. And um, uh, those are just realistic. So three positive things to do. Um, we publish, this is advertising, but forgive me, but actually I think it's quite reasonable advertising. Um, the wonderful reconciliation team here who work on the issues that we've developed um, have developed a wonderful course called Difference. You'll find it online. And Difference talks about three habits to develop. To be curious about those one encounters rather than allowing fear to be present, to be genuinely with them rather than as we so often are, and I might be here reaching for the other computer, reaching for my phone, and not really listening to you. I'm actually looking at something that came out this morning. I'm listening with half an ear. Be present. Be consciously with people and reimagine. What could, when you look at a conflict, do you have to go on this way? Can you imagine can you reimagine, perhaps with other help, a different way of living? So there you are. Fabulous. Thank you. Um, I've said I already um, love your phrase of the narrative of reconciliation. There's another thing that you've said that you say, I've heard you say that I also have really appreciated. Um, is that reconciliation is a, a process that lasts for a lifetime? Um, that for me is a very evocative um, and, and it's the over speed, it, it's the kind of response to your over speed point of before. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more, a bit more about what you mean by that? It, it comes from my consciousness of my own fragility. We learn to love. We learn holiness. The rule of St. Benedict speaks so powerfully to this, doesn't it? That uh, in the rule of St. Benedict, he says in chapter one, I shall start a school for the Lord's service. And he goes on through the rule to set out what 
those in the religious life, monks and the monks and nuns, what they'll learn. And it's clearly he's thinking of a whole lifetime. He says towards the end, there's a few exceptions who will go on well beyond this very basic standard. But he said, but he basically says for most of us, this is going to be a lifetime's work. We develop habits through a lifetime. We develop love through a lifetime. We develop peace through a lifetime. Reconciliation is like sanctification. It is part, sanctification is part of reconciliation. The process of growing in holiness until we see the truth and light of Christ face to face. Uh, Paul talks about this. Now we see in a glass darkly, then face to face. In Corinthians, in, in Philippians, not that I've already reached it, but I strive on. And this is basic psychology apart from anything else. And we kid ourselves if we think that harms that have been done, even between individuals, even to ourselves by ourselves, because the most basic reconciliation is between ourselves and God, and the next most basic is between ourselves and ourselves. Um, who do I find hardest to love personally? Me. Um, imposter syndrome comes out of that. And all these things are things we learn and develop and they become part of who we are. And remember the body, it's the training of the neural pathways very often as well, which God by his spirit is doing as we grow in reconciliation. And that feels like a wonderful message of forgiveness in a way, isn't it? So those days when you get it spectacularly wrong, um, to be able to live on through it, to recognise that it is a lifelong um, activity and not just, nothing is a snapshot, you haven't failed in this moment forever. No, and, and I'm glad you've used the word forgiveness. I should have used it earlier. Um, I think we have in our culture and it's through our radical autonomy and sense of defendedness. We have a profound famine of forgiveness. Uh, we are unable to forgive, unable to say this is history. And forgiveness is not always forgetting forgiveness may be remembering but remembering in a way that enables you to go forward and I'm very conscious of that in myself as well as in others yeah and, I, and, and it's really helpful I think isn't it to say that um that that wretched phrase um forgive and forget um is the most oh. unhelpful um phrase oh. for understanding the nature of forgiveness and particularly when it's something really, really profound. I mean, yeah, sure, someone bumps into you in the tube. Well, forgive and forget. Fine. Someone betrays you deeply. There's no switch behind your ear, which there's no, you know, control or delete, which enables you to remove that file from the brain. That doesn't mean we can't forgive. And we all know people like Mandela, Tutu, and so many others uh, 
from all over the place, and obviously supremely Jesus and God in Christ. Um, God can forget our sins. I think that's in Micah, if I remember rightly. Um, puts them at the bottom of the sea, sees them no more, abandons them to their destruction. But in our humanity, part of our fallenness is an incapacity to forget. But we can nurture forgiveness. I often talk, when talking about forgiveness, that when you're terribly hurt, you there are two trees you can plant. You can plant a tree of forgiveness and nurture it and water it, or you can plant a tree of hatred and nurture it and water it. And most of us have an orchard in our mind in which both trees grow and both produce fruit. And we need to garden better. That's a wonderful image. Um, it's been a wonderful conversation and we're just drawing to a close now. So I'd like to end by asking you, um, as you look around the global world, as you look around um, the UK, as you look around the Church of England, um, what gives you hope? Just before we started this conversation, I was, uh, I, this is a, an evening and I'm sitting in my office, Lambeth, um, but just before I was down at evening prayer and we had half an hour of prayer in front of uh, the Holy Sacrament, of silent prayer contemplation. And I was looking at the host, not terribly concentrated, if I'm brutally honest, not as much as I should be, not entirely present, but just momentarily from time to time in that half hour, blown away by the image that Jesus has given us by which we remember him as he set it up at the Last Supper. This fragility, and yet a fragility that transforms the world. Jesus gave everything and we see the impact of that around the world in extraordinary individuals, in miracles of reconciliation, in countries that find peace, in 18-year-old Swedish young women who somehow, for no reason that any of us can entirely understand, reach the whole world with the message of reconciliation with the creation. And the other most influential in our country is a man in his mid to late 90s who's just been on the telly a lot. And obviously I'm thinking there of Greta Thunberg and uh, uh, David Attenborough. And you look at that and you think, there is the spirit of God preserving God's world and doing the most extraordinary things well beyond the life of the church. And then you look in the church and you see the same things happening. You see wonderful outreach and, and healing and all based in the fragility of the universal God
who gave himself for us. That's where I find a hope that even in the darkest moments is not extinguished. Justin, thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you and I thank you for your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Paula, very much indeed. It's a great privilege and lovely to talk to you as well again.